This is Sound Lives, a new Music Box podcast sharing insights and stories from people who dedicate their lives to new music. Brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Sound Lives. I'm Frank J. O'Terry, and you're listening to Brandy Younger's Moving Target from her recently released album, Brand New Life. We'll be talking to Brandy Younger about that new album, the harpist Dorothy Ashby, who inspired it, some of her other heroes like Alice Coltrane, and how Brandy has used the harp to explore so many different kinds of music. Thank you, Brandy, for carving out time to chat with me today. I know that you're super busy and you've been cooped up for so long as we all have during the pandemic, and you're actually about to go on tour to promote this amazing new album, Brand New Life. But that's the same reason why I thought this was the perfect time to talk to you, because so much is going on right now. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I want to start this in a kind of silly, practical place. You might find this amusing, but there are a bunch of classic photos I love of Mingus dragging his base around different cities. And I was listening last night to Mingus Dynasty, which is, you know, one of those fabulous records. And there are some of those photos there in the booklet. I've known those photos for years and I love them. And I couldn't help but think as I was watching you perform at Wave Hill in the Bronx and then with your quartet in the Hamptons. And now that you're about to go on tour, how do you lug that harp around? I know. That's a good question. Sort of like piano players and bassists today, it is the harp du jour. We get local rentals. So you don't have a specific instrument that's like, this is my instrument. This is what I play on. Only at home. I never realized that. Because, you know, pianists always have to play, you know, the piano, as you said, the piano du jour. Except, you know, there was like Chick Corea only played this one piano that he had, you know, shipped everywhere he performed. Because I was thinking, like, how do you check it on an airplane? It's like you must have a heart failure every time you do that. Ah, Well, shipping harps, it's an ordeal. It's, It's almost like a casket, actually. Well, it's as big as the inside of a grand piano. So it's a giant. It's a lot. So back in the day, and they still do now, they'll ship in like these harp trunks that are huge, but now they're using shipping crates, which are essentially very, very large cardboard boxes with strategically placed styrofoam inside. Wow. And it won't knock tons of strings out of tune in the process, hopefully. Right. And they detune before shipping. So that's another thing. If you're on tour and you're going from state to state to state, the detuning and retuning and detuning and retuning, it's, it's not healthy for the instrument either. So I don't think I would want to ship my harp so frequently. I just shipped it back from Chicago and I'm like, oh, poor baby, are you okay? <laughs> well, I imagine then, you know, playing new instruments all the time. I know this is something that pianists have to deal with, but a harp is an even more intimate instrument because you are actually touching the strings rather than keys that hammer the strings. So there's like an intimacy you have with that instrument. So it must be strange playing new instruments all the time. You're right. It really is such a more personal instrument. It's like leaning against you. It's vibrating through you. We play on gut strings and gut strings are porous. So we always tell our students, wash your hands before you play, because whatever you were touching or doing, you're now pressing into the strings. You're right, it's personal. And it can be really gross if your hands are dirty. (laughs) In the pandemic, 
there was a whole thing about how we clean our gut strains without killing them. Do we put the alcohol sanitizer on the gut strings? It was a whole thing. I wasn't expecting us to go there. This is fascinating. <laughs> I was expecting, you know, like a horror story about this airport one time, you know. <laughs> but once again, I guess it's because this is yet another example of all the preconceptions that people, myself included, as not being a harpist, have about the harp. Probably there are more preconceptions about this instrument than any other instrument because of paintings and old movies and cartoons. You, know, you always see the harp being played by angels. And if there's any earthly music that people associate with the harp, it's usually classical music. And it's usually like some big orchestra piece and suddenly you hear one or two harp notes in it. And that's some kind of punctuation. And that's what you get. But you've completely redefined this instrument. You've made it into something much more malleable that can play in so many different styles. So I'm just very curious how you came to that. This was my instrument, and I wanted my instrument to fit into my personality. I didn't want it to be limited to just doing exactly what you just explained. It's so accurate. It's like count, count, count. Play something really quick, really hard. Count, count, count. I knew that I didn't want an orchestral career, but even as a kid, I wanted to play other styles of music. So I did at home, especially because my parents were like, could you play something someone knows? Or if there, were, <laughs> if there was a concert or a recital, my mom would say, go ahead and play whatever you've been practicing all these months, but then also play something that people recognize. So it was always sort of both that I wanted to do. Then over time, I finally began comfortable with blending those worlds together. But it took a long time to confidently try to put them together instead of living like, I felt like I lived a double life. Wow. Okay, so you say, I wanted my instrument to reflect me. But how did you wind up choosing the harp? How did that happen? There was a woman at my dad's job who played harp as a hobby. And my parents were like, oh, our daughter's musical. Can we bring her over to your house? And I played the flute. So we did some little flute and harp duets. And she mentioned to my folks, you know, I know a teacher that works well with kids. If she were to study the instrument and do well at it, she could probably get a scholarship. And that's the only word that the parents need to hear. <laughs> right. But you took to it instantly, it seems. Or were well, you like, I'd rather play the flute? How did you make that transition? I was happy to take it, to study it. I didn't do it in school, so I still had my flute life, which turned into a trombone life, by the way. I still had my school music life, which was very fulfilling because, for example, high school, I was in marching band, and my marching band was like my life, you know? We had a wonderful band director who modeled our marching band after the historically Black colleges that are out there. So that's what I was really invested in in school. So I wasn't in orchestra. I was in band. And then an off marching band season, we had jazz band. We had symphonic band. So that's what I did at school. And then at home, I had my harp lessons. So I was studying my traditional French repertoire. And then I was also playing like pop tunes or whatever I wanted to play that was on the radio. My teacher was so sweet as long as I did 
what was assigned to me, she would write out a lead sheet of whatever pop tune I brought in. So she was really, really cool about that. I don't remember this, so I don't know it to be true, but my parents used to fight me to practice when I was little. And they tried things like moving it, moving the harp. I didn't practice if it was in my bedroom. And I really didn't practice when it was in the basement. I do remember that because it was freezing down there. Putting it in the living room made me practice more. But my mom says that when my teacher said that I could make money doing it, that I all of a sudden started to practice. Although I think that's a lie. (laughs) Now, in marching band, you were playing flute or trombone. You weren't playing harp. Correct. (laughs) Although there is harp in band music, which I find really wacky. I know. It's funny. We have a lot of harp parts. And even in the military bands, they all have a harp. Very, very peculiar. So the whole jazz thing, you were at heart and one of your early mentors was the great Jackie McLean. As far as I know, he never performed with a harp. But as part of his Institute of Jazz at the Heart School, there were opportunities for harpists to play jazz. And I wonder if it's because he co-led a session with Kenny Durham, Kenny Durham featured harp on one of his records. Oh, Betty Glamour. Funny story. I bought that record when I was in my early 20s because of the cover. The cover are these two shots of Kenny, one of them holding a trumpet, and he's on a stool in both of them. And then the other, there's this harp. And I thought, oh, is he playing harp? And then it said underneath it, you know, Sonny Rollins, guest Sonny Rollins. Like, is Sonny Rollins playing They're harp? They're playing harp. You know, it's like, so <laughs> sold, instantly sold, right? And, you know, and then it was this other person I'd never heard of. It was wonderful, but it was something totally different from what I thought it would be. And that was the very first time I ever heard harp in a jazz context. That was before I discovered Dorothy Ashby. I, I mean, I knew of Alice Coltrane, but as a pianist, playing the last version of John Coltrane's group. It was a very unusual thing to me. So I'm curious how that connection happened to that world. Remember that off marching band season was jazz band. Right. And it was concert band. But also marching band was playing George Benson. It was playing Earth, Wind & Fire. It was playing Michael Jackson, right? right? So that's happening all in marching band. Our jazz band director, which is really funny, our instrumental teacher, he actually went to college and was roommates with Tim Warfield. He would go to Jazzmobile every weekend and come to school. He would talk to us about what he learned, but he would really talk to us about, like, y'all playing games in here. Y'all got to (laughs) practice. And he would just talk about his experiences each weekend for us. You know, we're kids. We're like, oh my God, would you go to Jazzmobile? What'd you do? What'd you learn? We were really excited. Hearing those stories was really captivating for us. So the interest was there. The interest was there. And probably late high school is when I got that. Do you remember those priceless jazz compilations? Right. No. I was in high school, but it was priceless jazz said artist. My dad gave me Priceless Jazz, Alice Coltrane. It's like a compilation series. So this particular record, the first track on it was Blue Nile. And I was like, what is this? Oh my gosh, what is this? Because whatever this harp is doing, it sounds really cool. It sounds really soulful. What the heck is going on? And I want to do this. That was my introduction to 
okay, the harp can sound different. It can do something different and it can sound really cool. So then I went on this whole Alice Coltrane quest because she was still living. And this is why I start to sound old. The internet existed. It wasn't quite what it was today. And so the search situation was not very easy. So I remember, this is so embarrassing, but here we are, 2023. Our jazz band, we were doing a competition somewhere in like Virginia, I don't know. And Clark Terry was there. And we all got an opportunity to quickly meet Clark Terry. And we're all standing in single file, one at a time, one at a time. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, it's an honor to meet you. I go, hi, Mr. Terry, do you know how I can get in touch with Alice Coltrane? I like, I feel so stupid because that's literally what I walked up to him and said. <laughs> but he was so sweet. And he's like, oh, honey, local 802, local 802. So I'm like, all right. I got to go home and figure out what the local 802 is. Wow. But when I got to college, and I, I remember actually when I auditioned for college, the first person I saw was Nat Reeves in the hallway. And I was like with my mom, and Nat Reeves was like, oh my gosh, hello, are you auditioning? It's just so welcoming. So that was actually my first experience with heart. So I already felt comfortable because... The first person I see walking in the hallway is like, hey, it was this familiarity. Hmm. So once I started school and I would bump into Jackie McLean in the hallway and I had such a funny college roommate who was not a music student, but she would come into the music school with us and kind of stand outside of Jackie McLean's door and just wait for him to open the door. It was so cute. But I, of course, hey, you guys know Alice Coltrane. How can we we work this out, right? That was 17 or 18-year-old me. And he was like, oh, you play harp. Come to any class whenever you want to. Come to the Artist Collective. So that whole welcoming vibe made me feel so comfortable. And I did. I I spent a lot of time sitting in mostly Steve Davis's repertoire building class. It was like a three hour long class that was master class style. And I would never bring my harp because I was not trying to play myself. I was a classical major studying my classical repertoire. I wasn't going to embarrass myself, but what it enabled me to do to sit in all those classes, to sit in ensembles was to just listen and absorb. The playing happened like in private, grabbing a schoolmate or something like, let's play through this standard or asking a teacher. On their lunch break, not even, I realize now as an adult, like, geez, they were so sweet because they didn't have to do that. So the road to Alice, did you finally connect to her? I never met Alice Coltrane. Isn't that crazy? Wow. But you did perform, you recorded with her amazing son, Ravi, on Soul Awakening. And that those are some of my favorite, favorite ensemble performances of yours. Oh, thank you so much. Let's listen to a bit of one of Brandy's recordings featuring Ravi Coltrane. This is Solaris from her album Soul Awakening. Thank you. 
passed away in 07 and Robbie called me to play for her memorial. And for me, that was what, you know, so this was 07. I was at this time in grad school here in New York. So I always credit Antoine Roney and Robbie Coltrane for being two of my biggest mentors. Don't ask me how two tenor saxophonists end up being this harpist mentor, but <laughs> such is life. But, you know, he would always talk to me about Alice Coltrane and Alice Coltrane's music and just, you should be doing this, you should be doing that, you should be listening to this McCoy Tyner. So when Robbie called for the memorial, I was completely floored because I knew that he could have asked anybody in the country to come play this memorial. This memorial was, it was at St. John the Divine. And it was um, Charlie Hayden, Jerry Allen, Rashid Ali, Jack DeJanette, Jeff Tane Watts, Cecil McBee, Reggie Workman, Steve Wilson. I remember it like yesterday. And it was the Ashram Choir. So that moment for me was really, really huge. And, and what's actually quite funny is that all these years of me listening to Alice Coltrane, I had actually never played her music before that memorial. Wow. I knew it. I could sing it. I could sing it. <laughs> but I actually hadn't played it. So solo waking, one of the things that blows my mind about it, because I love that album so much, is why did it take six years for it to get released publicly? It's so good. Frank, stop judging me. So what happened was, <laughs> what happened was, the first recording I put out was like a little EP that I never intended to put out. I thought it would maybe be a, a demo. And I remember talking to Casey Benjamin at the time. I go, hey, I recorded this demo. Just Can you just listen to it for me? He says something like, Andre 3000 said, don't release demos, just make records. It was funny. So I was like, okay. And that's when Bandcamp really started. So I put it out on Bandcamp. And through Bandcamp, I, I think I, I sold everything I produced, you know, sold all the CDs, lots of downloads. And I was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. I, I didn't expect that. And we recorded that in an analog studio, mind you. This was no doing, no punches, no edits, you know. And after that, oh, boy, I knew that as I started to work more as a leader, I knew that I needed recordings to sell. I'm trying to think of the timeline here, Frank. Right. I knew that I needed recordings to sell, but I didn't want to haphazardly just throw music out. I was talking to my dear friend, Megan Stabile, bless her. She said, well, Brandy, you know, these things take time. You don't want to just bust them out, bust them out, bust them out. But somewhere along the line, she signed a producer agreement with Blue Note and we did that record Supreme Sonacy. So we did one track for this compilation on Blue Note, Supreme Sonacy, and Anne Drummond was the flute player playing on it. And she said, I really like this concept, the sound that we had. Casey Benjamin produced it. It had a really cool sound, electric bass, drums, harp, tenor sax, and flute. She said, Brandy, let's do a project like this together. So I was like, bet. This sounds like a great idea, but I had already recorded Soul Awakening, Frank. I had recorded it, but I hadn't released it. So once Supreme Sonacy came out and then Anne said, oh, I'll do this with you. Let's do this together. We're going to get it done. I jumped on that. So I think that in between, I said, I need some kind of merch. So I have to do something. So then I did the live record. We did a live gig. We recorded it. 
And that was my merch. And to this day, that's my mom's favorite recording, by the way. That's a really terrific recording, too. Laws and all, my mom is like, I like the live record. But that is what I did as a hold-me-over. Here's some of Brandy Younger's composition, Respected Destroyer, performed by her quartet from that 2014 live album, Brandy Younger Quartet, Live at the Breeding Ground. Soul Awakening existed. Supreme Sonacy maybe came out after this, but then we're in the studio recording what became Wax and Wayne. I had help from Anne to get Wax and Wayne done, so we put Wax and Wayne out. So that is literally why Soul Awakening came last. In that everything kind of was done at once, but Soul Awakening ended up because I did not want to waste it. Gotcha. You don't want it to be like, you know, the third thing you put out and people ignore it because they already got the other two. No, I I get it. It makes sense. I'm actually (laughs) glad to hear that because I didn't want it to be something like, oh, at first I didn't think it was so good. And then I came around to it. It's like, it's amazing. Right. That's a part of it. What happens when me, at least, if I record something and I sit on it, I start to say, oh, no, I got to do this. I have to change that. I start picking it apart. And some people wait for that moment. They wait for the pick apart so that they can make it as perfect as they can. If I do that, I'll never get anything done. I know myself. So I know that I think I got to just play it, listen back, make necessary corrections and put it out because otherwise you keep changing stuff. And that's what I did. Soul Awakening ended up adding trombone to this and, you know, and it's just like, all right, enough's enough. Let's just get it out. So that's a part of it too. And then of course, the thing is with the picking apart and overthinking, you know, this music has to breathe. It has to be alive. It makes sense that your mother thinks the live album is her favorite thing because it's there. It's in the moment. It's real. There isn't like some studio thing where everybody's second guessing. Right, right. Making real music in real time. You know, recording has become this very elaborate art and people make records. They're like the audio equivalent of movies, the level of detail, the level of production. And I'm thinking about, you know, this latest album, Brand New Life, has so much production going on and so many different kinds of music are in this thing. And we didn't really talk about Dorothy Ashby yet, and we must. We mentioned Betty Glam and we mentioned Alice Coltrane. Alice you know, Coltrane. Yeah, you know, the other legendary predecessor of really recontextualizing the harp was Dorothy Ashby. Right. So the one 
huge, huge thing for me, Dorothy Ashby's music. You listen to what she was recording. She was doing music of the time. She was playing whatever she wanted. She was not jazz-specific. She was playing traditional Jewish melodies. She was playing the pop tune that came out. She was playing the soundtrack of the most popular movie that came out. And to think back as a kid of what I wanted to do, I always wanted to play the pop music that I heard on the radio. I wanted to play these familiar tunes for my friends and family. Meanwhile, I had my double orchestral life for everyone else. So she was doing, in essence, what I wanted to do. What's the a little sunflower? That was popular. That was new. Of course, to us, it was like an old standard, but that was new at the time. She really kept everything so fresh. And that was really daring at the time. And one thing that I think about constantly is that when she was active, Alice Coltrane was active, there's like these things that were working against them. You're a woman in jazz. That's a strike. You are black on the harp. That's a strike. And then you're putting a harp into jazz. That's like a trifecta. <laughs> yes. You know, in the 60s, things are hard now, but then forget about it. So I don't take for granted for one moment what they were able to do despite roadblocks. And in the archives, there are these album proposals that Dorothy Ashby would write to the labels. And she would write these concepts out and say, this is what I have in mind. And some of them were really forward thinking. And you could tell like some labels were just like not willing to take a chance on her because, oh my gosh, you know, her output, 11 albums, that's crazy. She did not live for very long. You know, I was listening last night to Hip Harp, which is her second LP, the quartet session with Frank mm -hmm. West. It's a great album. Three very famous standards and then three original compositions of hers. She was 25 when she put that record. Wow, wow. And, you know, it was 1958. This is extraordinary. And I was thinking about the stuff you said. Yeah, a woman in jazz, a Black person on the harp. But aside from that, a woman who is a leader of a session doing her own compositions with a group. A group That's of what I'm saying. Really, like, like top people. Yeah. And they respected her and they delivered her music. And that session really gels. It's really good. And her own Absolutely. compositions are fantastic. Absolutely. You know, she was a she was a composer and she had a theater company in Detroit where she would compose the music for the plays. And sometimes she would recycle some of that music. So what we recorded on Brand New Life includes some of that theater music that she wrote for these plays. To my knowledge, a lot of these have not previously been recorded to me, which was like the coolest thing on earth. I was thinking when I recorded this, I knew that these tunes were from the 50s for sure, but I had in my mind the albums that resonated with me the most, which makes perfect sense as a hip-hop baby, are those cadet records, right? Late right. 60s, Richard Evans made it real funky. And I was like, okay, she recorded this in Chicago. It would be really cool if we recorded this in Chicago. Hey, Micaiah. We're coming over. So we actually recorded this in Micaiah's house. 
in his home studio. He and Rashawn Carter, who played bass, they recorded downstairs. I recorded upstairs in the living room because, you know, the harp and stairs, not cute. Right. <laughs> and the core of the record, I didn't want too many sounds getting in the way. And it was funny because just talking to Makai about wanting to add this and add that. And I'm like, don't add too much. We really want the harp to stand out for this one and the harp to really shine through. However, at this point in my life and career, it's, it's really important that this be my voice. So even though this is her music, this needs to come across through my eyes, with my voice. So in choosing how to nod to her other than playing some of her composed music was to add elements. Joel Ross was an intentional addition of vibraphone because if you listen to that album of her, was at Soft Winds, Terry Parr on vibraphone. That sound is something that she embraced having strings. That's something that she embraced. Mm. Flute, something she embraced. So we did add these elements that she had on her recordings. However, stylistically, is very much like Brandy and Makaya in the studio. <laughs> you know, and Rashawn, like very natural, very organic. Well, what I kept thinking about each time I listened to this album is it's in a way it's more impressive than your regular tribute album, but it's exactly what she would have done had she lived. So had she like, lived, you know, yeah. it's not like you're not ossifying it and turning it into this like museum piece. And I think it makes sense that, you know, you gave it the title brand new life. You're giving a new life to her legacy. Totally. And thank you for recognizing that because it was really important for me to, to make it 2023. There were one of the tunes that was funny. Oh, You're a Girl for One Man Only, which was the first track. Mm. It read through just like a really, really traditional standard. And we were like, okay, we can't make this be the read down, you know? In just playing through it, Micaiah was like, oh, just repeat the first two bars and then repeat the first four bars and then repeat that. So it was what Micaiah would be doing in post-production, but we were playing it in real time. So it was almost like him making this track, but we were playing the track. I really love that he did that with this. It was just enough to not kill the song, but make it our own. You definitely made it your own. And I'm listening to this and it's like, I'm not sure where Dorothy Ashby ends and Brandy Younger begins. And that's kind of the point. That was the point. It wasn't to be a tribute album. You know, it was to really celebrate her legacy, but like moving right along. As my, my old harp teacher used to say, moving right along. And what I love and the real smartness in how you've marketed this, I know that, you know, you released singles before the whole album comes out, which is unheard of in how jazz albums are normally promoted but this is not just a jazz album it's many many different things so that part in keeping my mind on dorothy ashby and her legacy and me just being a new yorker hip-hop baby just how celebrated she is in hip-hop because she's sampled so heavily it was really important for me to collaborate with folks that really shared a special kinship with her. And the first person to pop up in my head is, of course, Pete Rock, who's the first person I know of to sample her. When he said yes, I was like, oh my gosh, it took some arm twisting. But I'm like, 
I'm going to send you these tracks. These have not been out there. You have not heard them before, you know? (laughs) So it was really an honor for him to work on this track. Also, he did Living and Loving in my own way. And Ninth Wonder worked on the windmills. That was one of the most covered tunes at the time. And it's one of her most sampled recordings. You've turned it into something totally different from her version of it. Right. That was the goal. And I knew Michelle and Diggiocello was a huge Dorothy Ashby fan. I got this cover of hers, Dust from the Rubiat of Dorothy Ashby. That's the original. But we've made a reggae track. Could you sing on this, please? Do whatever speaks to you. And she said she sang to the bass line, you know? <laughs> Let's check out a little bit of Dust, which features Michelle and Diggiocello from Brandy Younger's Brand New Life. so special about what's on the record from just my relationship with Rashawn and with Micaiah, who I've known for so long, been working with for so long, one way or another. And then to have these people that share this love for Dorothy Ashby, who don't know me, (laughs) agree to work with me on this it really was an honor and the one wild card on this record is brand new life the title track we recorded the track and this was the one track that just played itself this is an original and we just played it we didn't talk about it it was one of those things that just happened the mind reading that i love just happened i said oh my gosh i need someone that is a really soulful singer, but then also his really smooth background. Who could do this? And I I reached out to the producer, Salam Remy, and I said, can you help me? I have this track and we recorded it. We did a fast version and a slow version. And I sent them to him and I said, who can do soulful and smooth? And he said, Mumu Fresh. And mm-hmm. I said, Mumu Fresh? Oh, she's great. I know her more as a rapper. And he goes, trust me. And when I tell you, when she sent it over, I mean, I think there may have been a tear, Frank. I was like, this is so beautiful. And we briefly texted and her brother recently passed away. And she said, I wrote these words with my brother in mind. And I was just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And it's really just about like nothing ever dies, you know. Beautiful. The ultimate tribute. We have to listen to some of that. Here's Brand New Life, featuring Mumu Fresh, which is the title track of Brandy Younger's album, Brand New Life. This love is so deep. Time, space, could 
So yeah. a few silly harp related questions for you, because I've got to say, you know, the harp is an instrument I've always been somewhat scared of. I don't completely understand how you navigate through the pedals. And I'm curious in terms of all the music you do, since the pedal position kind of locks you into only being able to play seven of the 12 at the time, you can move around and you can move all these pedals and do all this stuff. But I wonder how fast can you change positions? And in so much of this music, certainly in the jazz end of things, is all about subtle chromatic alterations. You can't really do that on a harp. Frank, it is hard. I mean, that's why I appreciate it when there's like two measures of one chord. I'm like lean into it because we can do the chromatics, but depending on how fast they are, you can hear the, the footwork. I call it the tap dancing with so many pedals and in terms of like when you're improvising and you maybe don't have everything premeditated that you're going to play, you got to think about what you're going to play and then think about the pedals necessary to move in order to play what you want to play. It's a lot of thinking. Another silly harp question. And I was thinking of this because I was very curious and I've now listened to many different recordings of it online. And then you have a recording you released of your composition Unrest. And I was thinking, okay. This is going to be angry, but a harp can't sound angry. <laughs> and of course it doesn't, but it also doesn't sound happy. It sounds like something else. I wonder, like, how do you convey some of these more turbulent emotions? I think Alice did it by just playing crazy, crazy fast. You know? <laughs> well, like, so for unrest specifically, if you're a harpist, or even just a harp listener, there's one area you don't want to hear. And that is the lower register with notes close together. I mean, maybe it's similar on piano too. It just gets really, really muddy down there. And that is how I started Unrest. In the lower register, it's uncomfortable to play and it's uncomfortable to listen to. And that was my intention. And I know it opens up into this more of a reflective section that accidentally may sound beautiful, but it's reflective. And it's just a moment to sit literally and reflect on what's happening. But then it goes right back into that uncomfortable section where it's down in the lower register. So, I mean, there are things that we can do that don't sound pleasant, especially when it comes to extended techniques, where the boing and ring, all those kinds of noises that really, really make you feel uncomfortable. <laughs> So, you know, we do have some extended techniques that we can do. Well, I love unrest. I think it totally works. And I just couldn't figure out why it works. And now, now I understand it a little more. I have it looping in my head right now as we're talking the opening of that. It's great. Um, Thank you. Here's the turbulent opening of Brandy Younger's original composition, Unrest.
a final area I want to get into with you. I really enjoyed seeing your quartet perform that live performance, the Hamptons. And it was the first gig that you did live after being in lockdown for so long. And you talked about how important it was to be performing in front of a live audience again and how much energy you get from people being there. And you're about to embark on this tour and play in front of lots of audiences. So it's going to sound ironic for me to say this, but I think my absolute favorite recording of yours is Force Majeure, which is this incredible duo album you recorded with your husband, double bassist Desron Douglas, in lockdown. You were like trapped in your home doing this, but it's magical. It's like a beacon of hope, what was during these really, really horrible times we all lived through. Can you say organic? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very much so. Completely unplanned, literally just reacting to the moment in every way. There's such chemistry. There's such energy in that recording. And it's like... Pure honesty. Pure raw. That's the word raw. I absolutely love it. Thank you. And I know, you know, it's done in lockdown and you want to perform outside. But the other thing I'm thinking of, it's a, it's in lockdown. Well, you're playing your own instrument. So you're not like using someone else's instrument. That's hilarious. Right. So th that was the one great thing about lockdown, you know, being able to just play and really become more familiar with my instruments. And I actually have two newer harps when you're traveling all the time you don't even get to break your own instruments and when you're in college you know you're bang 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 you're really like pounding your instrument out but now I'm not so that really was an opportunity to start to break the instrument in but that Hamptons gig I can't forget that because it was like a big exhale for I think all of us the weather was per do you remember the weather and it was like suddenly re-emerging, you know, after being cocooned for so long. Shout out to Duck Creek. Yeah, it's great. Well, hopefully, it seems like everything's starting up again. You know, people are acting like it's completely over. Of course, we know it's not completely over. But hopefully, we're past the worst of this thing. I hope. I feel as such. I hope. So you're about to embark on this multi-city tour traveling are you just playing things from the new album or combination of things what's the plan yeah so we'll be doing some of the new music and also some stuff from the last album i always throw in an ashby or coltrane tune because that's my thing that i've been doing forever and the tour is mostly going to be trio rashawn carter on bass alan mednard on drums so yeah harp trio baby nice you're gonna play on rest Yep. Good. Sure am. I want to hear it as a trio. That's Yeah. Exciting. We recorded that on the Somewhere Different session, but decided to release it separately on its own. Interesting. Well, good luck with all of that. Thank you so much for taking time with me this morning. I know you've got a busy schedule ahead and keep doing it. Thank you so much for having me. You're the best. This is Aww. a lot of fun. Really a lot of fun. It's not always a lot of fun. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> that concludes this episode of Sound Lives. But before we go, we need to listen to some of that amazing duo album, Force Majeure, that Brenda Younger recorded during lockdown with her husband, bassist Desron Douglas. This is from a track with a title that a lot of folks who live through the pandemic will relate to. 
Toilet Paper Romance. New Music Box is brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. This program is funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York State Council on the Arts, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit newmusicusa.org to explore more stories and voices from our new music community.